Good Morning Sleepy Town. I'm Beau Bartlett, and you're listening to The Art House. Art House Radio on 88.5 WCUG. Coming to you from 9th and Broadway, the Carpenters Building, in beautiful downtown Columbus, Georgia. How you doing today? Hope you're doing okay out there. It's a beautiful morning in Columbus. We have a great show for you today. We have a show of poetry. We have Columbus's own Nick Norwood with us today. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Happy to be here, Bo. Glad you're here. Glad to have you back on the show. Thanks. And we have a guest, our special guest, Lauren Green. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for being with us today. We have a couple of things here. We have a, a word of the day. The word of the day is metaphor. Metaphor. What is a metaphor? Grazing. Ha ha. <laughs> That's a southern joke. Um, what is a metaphor, Nick? A metaphor is a way of saying something by saying something else. And you know, uh, one of my favorite definitions of art is from Duke Ellington. He said, art is saying something without ever really saying it. There you go. Isn't that great? That's great. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. Yeah. And we have a quote of the day from our guest. A quote of the day. I palm each of my mother's reprimands, plant them in the lily garden for when she is gone. Lauren Green. I palm each of my mother's reprimands, plant them in the lily garden for when she is gone. I love that. All right, so I hope you'll enjoy the show. We're going to finish off with our little piece of music here, which is Awake by Lambert, and then we're going to go into an interview with our guests. Thanks for being with us in the Art House today. listening to The Art House on 88.5 WCUG. I'm here with our guests this morning, Nick Norwood and Lauren Green. I'm going to start with Nick. Nick, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Fine. How are you doing, Bo? I think I'm hanging in there. All things considered. All things considered. Thanks for asking. Hmm. Um, Nick, do you have a poem to sort of set the mood for us this morning? Well, yeah. You know, I love this time of year. It's my favorite time of year. And I don't want to get up on my soapbox, but I'm a little upset with people who just run over Halloween and Thanksgiving. 
because those are holidays that I think each should get their own time, right? And there are political ramifications of Thanksgiving, but I think we should use it as an opportunity to learn about Native American culture, for instance. But I think we should also, it's a, giving thanks is not a bad idea. But I love the season and I love the weather here in Georgia. And Robert Frost has a number of poems about liminal periods of the year, you know, the, the changes between seasons. He has this great poem called The Oven Bird is about the end of summer. And he has this great poem called Now Close the Windows. Now it's funny because here in Georgia, this is the time of the year when we open our windows. <laughs> but you know, in New England, it would be uh, when you would close the windows. So this is an early poem from his first book, A Boy's Will. It's called Now Close the Windows. Now close the windows and hush all the fields. If the trees must, let them silently toss. No bird is singing now, and if there is, be it my loss. It will be long ere the marshes resume. It will be long ere the earliest bird. So now close the windows and not hear the wind, but see all wind stirred. Mm. Gorgeous. Yeah, it's a good autumn poem, I think. It really is. It is. It's great. He's great on that on that uh, between seasons period. I, so. I understand it well, being in Maine into the early autumn. I get it. Mm. Thanks. Mm -hmm. And Lauren, yes. well, welcome. Hi. Tell us, what, you, what on earth are you doing in Columbus, Georgia? I am here as the Marguerite Lamar Smith Fellow at the Carson McCullers House in Columbus. And how long have you been here? I've been here since the 1st of September. Great. How much longer are you in town? Only for a few more days. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, what do you think about our fair city here? I think it's lovely. Yeah, Nick and I were talking about it, just how different it is from every other place that I've I've lived, really. Yeah. Where, where were you born? I was born in New York City, mm -hmm. and I spent the first... I mean, actually the first 98% of my life there. And then I came to Austin for graduate school and I moved here from Austin. Oh, you moved here from Austin. There was something in your bio about Columbia or am I wrong about that? No, yeah, that's where I went to college. Okay. Yeah. And what did you study there? I studied a lot of things. I went in as a classics major, mm -hmm. very quickly switched to Italian and East Asian religion. And then I ended up falling in love with Russian literature. So I did a minor in Russian literature and my major was creative writing. Wow. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> yeah. I was very undecided and only decided because I was forced to. Yeah. Yeah. Deciding is hard. It's so hard, especially when you have a lot of passions, you know, it's, yeah. I, I want to take everything and learn everything. Yeah. I'm not big on deciding. <laughs> just let everything else decide for you and then you decide by default and you're not responsible <laughs> <laughs> typical artists right <laughs> um a couple of things so how did you find out about the carson mccullough's house and the, and the program and 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 how did you actually get here from where you were this is a very good question i was thinking about it i have no idea how i found out about it I can I can guess. Go, yes. You please. saw an advertisement in Poets and Writers for a writing fellowship residency. Could that be it? Option number one. <laughs> Option number one. Option number two, you did a Google search on writing residencies and 
hours popped up. Um, That's option number option two. Option number three, the ghost of Carson McCullers came to you in your dreams <laughs> and said, Lauren, you must do this. You must write in my childhood home. I'm going to go with the option number three. I, <laughs> okay. I, I like three too. I think door number three, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Door three sounds like the, the right choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then have you experienced her while you've been here? Experienced Carson. Carson. Yeah. I did experience some sort of spirit in the music room. Just some phantom drifting by. You're, you're not alone in that. I mean, it's famous for that. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I think is a good thing, Nick. Melissa Pritchard tells me that Joy Harjo came into that house and she said, oh, um, what, what did she call it? This, the, the, the vibe. That wasn't the word she used, but yeah. basically this yeah. good, good vibe in this place, good spirits in this, in this house. So, yeah. And she's the poet laureate, so she would know. She would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we hear some music, guys? Sounds good. Okay. Um, let's see. Lauren, do you want to choose the first piece of music for us this morning? Yes, I would love to. My song choice is called Anchor, and it's by Novo Amor.
That was Anchor by Novo Amor. I'm Bo Bartlett, and I'm here with Nick Norwood and Lauren Green. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so um, I have a question for you, Lauren. I have, I have one question. Uh, I listened to the Zoom. You had a Zoom the other night, and I listened, and, and something that you said struck me. A couple of things, actually. <laughs> um, and I wanted you to try to clarify a little bit. You said we live in a society that values productivity. I don't know if you remember saying that, but then your response or your the next thought that followed that was, you said, I'm in the process of becoming. And so my question for you is, what does that mean and what are you becoming? Well, I'll answer the second part first. I think that like all things, and by all things I mean the soil and the rocks and the trees that are constantly in process of undergoing some sort of metamorphosis every single day, you know, that's how living things develop. And it is to me what I see as the natural process of one's life or telos is moving towards some sort of change and hopefully that change is a sort of wholeness i've done a lot of buddhism studies i was telling you before and in mahayana buddhism there's this idea of the wisdom which is the development of oneself and then the compassion which is how we extend that outward and to meld the compassion and wisdom together is the ultimate goal but it's not a fixed point there's no terminus to the process of growth so I think that for me, becoming is continuing to delve inward, sort of when you go under a wave, right? If the wave's coming at you to tunnel down and down and figure out whatever energy is there, whatever elemental spirit is there and continue to embody it. And that's the process of becoming for me. So it's not like you went to school and became a writer, and now you're a writer? No, 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 I don't know. I don't know if, if anyone feels that way. I mean, you, let's say, as an artist, 
Don't you feel you're constantly evolving, changing? I want to be able to not label myself and not put myself in a box. But, you know, I got out, I got out of art school. I got a certificate saying I was an artist, my artistic license. And, and I've tried to let artistic art, I've tried to let artist be a, uh, a pretty broad term, freeing me up to do whatever I want to do. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I do think that I, I limit myself. I, mean, I think that words, this is one of my problems with words in general. I have, I have a real issue with words because they take a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of concepts, feelings, emotions, ideas, and they put it all into this one little capsule. It's like a little capsule that closes in on both ends of itself. And then you spit that out of your mouth and that's supposed to be all that stuff in one word. And that's extremely difficult and limiting and troublesome to me as a visual person. You might be interested in the poet Mary Oliver's description of the poet of the language of poetry, because I think she might say that that's how language operates outside of poetry. There's a one-to-one -one relationship between the word used and what is meant. But she says that in poetry, language can never be merely informational. And this is the great part. This is the metaphor. Oh, today's <laughs> word, right? Mm -hmm. She says, in poetry, language has to cast more than one shadow. Say it again. In poetry, the language has to cast more than one shadow. Mm -hmm. And what she means is that there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between the word on the page and what is meant. There is this range of things that is suggested by this word. Yeah, so it's a little different. It doesn't pin it down. I see what you're saying, right? It's, it doesn't confine things in the way that language might, if it's operating, say, in a biology textbook, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or some other place, but, but not in a poem. Yeah, that's why I've, I've tended to prefer the visual language because it's just, you know, open to interpretation at every corner, whereas in spoken language or written language, you know, people hold you accountable <laughs> <laughs> for what you say. And it's too easily misconstrued. I mean, from my point of view. No, it's yeah. true. I think that part of the beauty of language, but also the violence of language, is just that it carries such enormous power. When you look at all of the traditions, any ancient tradition, the first thing that's given to, to man is the ability to say, well, this is this thing. This is X, Y, or Z. And by naming it as X, Y, or Z, you're suddenly cutting it off from just the infinite possibility of what it could be. So I, I hear you, you know, the, the very act of naming is a divisive act. Yeah, my theory is that God doesn't speak English. I what, could be wrong. Yeah, what, what language <laughs> does God speak? <laughs> Not in words at all, although I guess the word. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That one of my favorite quotes from Nietzsche, it was clever of God to have written the Bible in Greek and not to have learned it better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So uh, on that note, I think we should hear a little more music. Nick, you brought some selections for us today. What do you have on the, on the turntable there? Well, you know, it's something on the way over here, Lauren and I got to talking about Andrew Wyeth, of, <laughs> of all people. And she recognized that that uh, you have a real affinity for the work of Andrew Wyeth. And I told her about your documentary film. I don't know if I've ever told you, uh, but when I was working on this book, I have a copy here, Gravel and Hawk, mm -hmm. my way of working on this book 
was to look at images by Andrew Wyeth and then to play this CD that a student had burned for me by the Kronos Quartet called Lacrime Antique. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I lo- love pretty much every every tune on there. It's by a lot of old composers. Uh, John Dowland uh, is one of the composers, but one of them is Arvo Part, and the piece is Salam. It's a beautiful piece. It's very moody, and it would get me into the right frame of mind, along with looking at the images uh, of paintings by Andrew Wyeth to write the poems that wound up in this book. Yeah. Per- perfect. I, I, I love Wyeth, love Kronos Quartet, and I don't know, and I love Avro Part, but I don't know this piece of music, so let's give it a listen. It's So Long by Kronos Quartet. This is a poem from my book, A Palace for the Heart. It's called Into the Forest, and it is a persona poem in the voice of a fictional character named Adolf von Schomburg, an amateur historian. Into the Forest. If poetry is an act of recovery and drama just a way of staging what it is we would not care to lose, Let us give in to the operatic impulse. Note how, in autumn, the forest is so extravagant in its dying, how it gives us its all, how every leaf becomes an actor who has waited his entire career to deliver this scene. Who knows but that he might have survived the dark cave of winter had he resolved to be more conservative. 
We may find in the end we have nothing to build but our legacy. Let it be grand. Let them analyze until they are sick with envy the ingenious ways we composed our destruction, how we left in our wake a forest path strewn with our delicate remains. What inspired that poem, Nick? This season, and the and the you know the beautiful colors that we get this season was part of the inspiration. Now the book is a is a whole series of dramatic monologues in the voices of some actual historical figures, and then some that I made up. That was one that I made up, and you know it's been a while since I wrote that poem, but I just know that it, with these fictional characters through whom the poems speak in that section. I wrote them all really fast. Hmm. And I just came up with these figures. How about this guy? What about this name? What maybe an amateur historian? Yeah. What would he say? And, and just started with that sort of idea and away I went. So that's about all I can recall. Yeah. Really. It reminds me of a quote, which actually I have in, in the center in one of the vitrines in the center, which is uh, from Keith Jarrett. I don't know if you've ever seen that little quote in the vitrine, but it's uh, something like, Anyone who produces anything other than a convenient self-made tomb will be known as a survivor. Hmm. Anyone who produces anything other than a convenient self-made tomb will be known as a survivor. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. It went along with his improvisational piece, uh, mm -hmm. Survivor Sweep. Mm -hmm. But there's just something about that, that, that sort of legacy concept mm -hmm. that, that, that sort of triggered that thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I keep replying that line. We may find we have nothing to give but our legacy. Is that we may find in the end we have nothing to build but our legacy. I love that. Thank you. It's a terrifying thought. Well, you know, the thing is that I think in this country, for instance, I don't want to veer off into some political discussion here. Hey, hey, this is... This is Art House Radio. <laughs> I guess anything goes on Art House Radio. We're free. Right? Yeah, okay. Well, I just feel like I would like for America to concern itself more with its legacy rather than maintaining its power. I think its legacy is more important. And that was sort of, you were asking, what's the impulse behind that poem? That, I think that was something that crept in. It's not like I sat down, I want to write a poem that says that, but somehow that crept into the poem because it is something that I believe. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I would love to see my country do something with its legacy that is good and that becomes um, something for, you know, future people to admire. I fear that's not where we're headed. That's a great way to think about it. I think what we need is some common goal. I think that we've lost all sense of, uh, can I use the word teamwork? Mm. You know, it's like when you're I don't want to use a sports analogy, but I will, you know, like when you're young and you're playing a sport, a team sport, you know, you know that sometimes you're not going to be the person running for the touchdown. You might be the person who's blocking for the person that's going to run the touchdown. And that's called teamwork. You know, you're not going to get the glory at all, but you're doing it for the team, for, mm -hmm. the, for the good of the guy who can run for the touchdown. And I, and I think somehow we, we all understand that conceptually, but when it comes to America, like our teams become fractured and tribal and small into our small groups instead of to the whole team, uh, the nation, the legacy. And I think so. I think that there's a, some an overriding concept we're sort of missing right now that, mm -hmm. that wouldn't be hard to click into. Mm -hmm. 
legacy is a good way to think about it. Arnie, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I was going to say, I was listening to something earlier today and it was talking about the idea of legacy, actually. And it, the idea of planting a garden that you'll never see come to fruition, but that somebody else will. And that's one of the most generous, selfless things that people can do is not, okay, let me help you know, my brethren, but let me help people I will never meet and creatures and the world and all of that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, it's work. I like the idea of planting trees. I, one of the ideas I have for my retirement is that I'll just become like Johnny Appleseed yeah. and just go around planting trees. Wouldn't that be the best? I think so. Let's. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We have a mission. <laughs> all right. Um, <clears throat> let's hear another piece of music before we have Lauren read a uh, selection. So um, who's going to pick it this time? Who wants to go? Well, oh, look, I went last time, so Lauren, I Lauren, do you have another piece of music for us? Oh, I do. Yes. Inspired by our talk about legacy and the Anthropocene, my song is Holocene by Bonnie Bear. Oh, oh, oh. 
Christmas night we clutch the light The hollow bright That was Holocene by Bon Iver. You're listening to The Art House on 88.5 WCUG. I'm your host, Bo Bartlett, and we're here with Nick Norwood, poet Nick Norwood, and poet Lauren Green. Good morning, Lauren. Morning. You have a reading for us, I think, right? I do. Okay, I, we are all looking forward to it. It's, uh, it's all yours. The Circus Train The summer before the occupation of Poland, My grandfather belonged to a circus that zigzagged up the country, from Krakow to Vilnius. He worked as a roustabout, pitching the canvas tent and rigging the aerial silks. His favorite thing about the gig, he said, was that the circus traveled by freight train. Sometimes he'd have to hop on while the train was already in motion. Six years later, he still had the scars along his calves to prove it. Every weekend the year I turned 13, I slept over at his and grandma's. On Friday afternoons, my mother would drop me off in front of their duplex in White Plains, and I'd walk the three steps to the door. I didn't enjoy being there, but it beat being at home. My grandparents' house contained little by way of entertainment. It's no small thing to be bored, my grandfather said when I complained about the lack of game consoles, the TV that only had four channels. To him, boredom was a luxury. For hours, he'd sit in his wing-back chair, a look of contentment etched across his face as he stared out the window at the tall oaks flanking the house. Each Saturday evening, after my grandmother departed for her bridge club, my grandfather would start talking about those days spent hauling equipment from the railroad station to the showgrounds. He was senile by then, had already started to forget the small things, the name of his neighbor, what grade I was in, which door led to the bathroom, the bedroom but he still remembered the final circus performance and would recount it with the same bravado each time, as though it were the first. Several men in leotards were on stage, balancing on big, rainbow-colored balls when the gunfire began. The shots were far enough away that they sounded like fireworks, dull, flat cracks. The audience laughed and glanced around nervously, assuming it was part of the act, but then overhead, fighter bombers filled the sky. In the distance, ashy clouds plumed, people screamed, no one knew where to run. 
My grandfather said he'd never seen so many people moving at once, a crowd of them pushing forward toward God knows what. What happened to them, I asked. Did they make it out before the Nazis arrived? At this point in the telling, his expression changed, and I understood that he was no longer with me, but back at the circus, covering his mouth with his scarf to keep out the smoke. I leaned in, committing his words to memory, wanting to get them right. The saddest part, he said, what he couldn't let go of, was hurrying backstage and finding the animals still tethered to their cages, whimpering, hackles raised. Lions and tigers, even the majestic elephant, whose eyes were large and wet between the bars, as if she knew it was something they'd both never forget. Beautiful. I love that image. I love the whole idea of that, which uh, I'm, I'm assuming is, is from personal experience. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It's wonderful. I love that. The, 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 last, uh, the last circus performance. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. Is it from personal experience? No. No, it's actually not. But my grandparents do or did live in White Plains. I guess that part <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you extrapolated that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so where did that come from? I was thinking about stories and the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell others and how, how stories get lost with time and with the erosion of memory. Um, and I think that that was the germ of the idea and trying to envision what this grandfather would be passing on to his grandchild and what that grandchild would be clinging on to in these final days. And so is it part of a larger something? No, no. That's just, it. That's it. Oh man, that's awesome. That's really cool. So that's what we would call a piece of flash fiction, right? Or flash short, fiction. short. Well, I have a question for you. This yeah. is my, something that I talk about with my students. I've been teaching this course on poetics mm -hmm. and I'm teaching these undergraduates about a number of things related to poetics, metaphor for instance, is one of the things, but also about different um, uh, kinds of poetry and different poetic forms. And so um, I asked them, what's the difference between a piece of flash fiction and a prose poem? So Lauren, I'm so happy that you're here today. Tell us, <laughs> what's the difference between a piece of flash fiction or a short short and a prose poem. Now I feel like, well, I'm, I don't want to <laughs> give into this definition of language. Well, well, you go ahead and say what you want to say, yeah. and I, and I, because I, I you, that's what I come around to. You'll really. clean it up for us. Well, no, I come around to. I say, look, maybe maybe that one of the things we should recognize is why do we need to put a label on it in the first place? Right. Mm -hmm. But I notice that people do. For instance, you know, the prose poem has its own journal. And flash fiction has its own journal. And flash fiction is getting really popular these days. And there are a lot of writers who are producing books where we're like, what is it? Is, is this a collection of stories? Is it is a collection of prose poems? Does it matter what we call it? Except for, so they'll know where to sell it in the bookstore? Yeah, I, I think of Lydia Davis. Right, that's uh, one of the main writers I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah straddles absolutely. that line so yeah. brilliantly. Maybe for me, at least, I think of prose as something that starts in one place and moves horizontally toward another, whereas poetry 
starts at one place and then moves vertically toward another. If mm. that mm. if that makes sense, just mm-hmm. in my visual brain, that's how I would define All it. Right. What what do you I don't know. I like that definition. I'm I, I, I like that uh um it is very conceptual and you know, I but but I, I can sort of feel it. I sort of feel what you mean by that, mm-hmm. you know. And um, that's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna remember that for my poetic students. Can I quote you on that? Oh please. Okay, yeah. I will. All right. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, <laughs> it's very visual. I, I get it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that online, Lauren, some of your poems. I found a few poems online, and and they sort of had a slightly irregular form. I mean, not like E Cummins or anything, but like sometimes the the first line was like halfway through the mm-hmm. the first line. I mean, as a visual person, that's very exciting for me to start a poem like that because I, I sort of like see it as an object as opposed to just like, you know, information I'm supposed to gather. Can you tell me a little bit about that or what your thought processes is or who influences you or anything like that about uh, the, the form that the, the poem takes on the written page? And I wasn't sure actually if maybe it was just the way it was formatting on my iPhone, you know, like maybe it was, which in a way makes us we get used to reading things that are formatted in strange ways. You know, it was formatted for a website, but it shows up on your iPhone in a different way. So it was like, and I wasn't sure if it mattered <laughs> or if it, you, it, it was intentional if you were to print it on the page. Yeah, it's a good question. I happen to be a very visual person. And I think that when I think about language, it is 100% visual. But I also think that when anyone encounters a poem, the way that they're encountering it, whether it be spoken aloud or on the page or if there's some other way that I'm missing is completely going to change the meaning and one of the things I love about form but also just about seeing something on the page is that there's just so many more things that you're able to play with so many more components just the very spelling of words can change and a word that's heard aloud I'm trying to think of a good example but I was going to use the word cleave, which is an auto antonym, meaning both to come together and to to separate. I think that when you encounter that on the page, there's a moment in which you can pause and think, well, if this means to come together, how does that alter what the poem means? Um, And likewise, in terms of spacing or formatting, what is that pause, that caesura in the middle of this piece do to how you start to process it. You know, do you inhabit that silence that's given to you? Because um, maybe you agree with me, Nick, but, or not. Oftentimes the blank space on a page is where the astonishment or the wonder gets activated mm-hmm. because suddenly I, 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 as the poet, am stepping back and I'm asking you as the reader to come in and inhabit that. No, it's funny how much th- that, what you just said, aligns with an essay I just published called On Poetry's Pure Serene, where I make the argument that I think the, that the, um, the poems, the best form is the poem on the page and that all other forms are inferior. And for, one of the reasons is because there is this visual component and it's also this thing that happens where it's almost like as a reader, when you're really absorbed in a poem, it's almost like you enter the page and you, you actually sort of walk around among those letters and so forth. And there is no other experience with a poem that can match that experience. You know, that's my feeling. Everybody, you know, loves a good poetry reading. But to me, the best experience with a poem that's, that's written for the page is on the page. 
It, yeah. Several things that brings up for me. One is um, the sort of the the idea of double entendre, or you know, triple entendre, or quadruple entendre. You know, in painting and visual realm, you can have that ad infinitum. I mean, you can have something that means multiple things. It means multiple things to me when I'm painting it, and the viewer is open. It's completely open to interpretation. As a writer, you can have cleave. You can have something that means two completely separate things, and then. But I guess at some point you have to make a decision about what do you mean and what do you want to you? Does it have a specific meaning which you're trying to express or is it more open to interpretation? And that's the idea. So it's a, is it an open ended question or is it, is it multiple or multiple interpretations? Okay. Or is there something right that you're expressing? Right. As a, in quotes, that's a question I think. Yeah, I think I, <laughs> I used to do a lot of theater when I was growing up and I remember the director would always say, well, you have to know these things about your character. Even if the audience never finds out, it's important that you know them. And those are character choices. And I think that with every piece of writing, I may have a character choice, what I see, but then what you bring to your reading of it is as right in quotes or as true or as authentic, hopefully, if the poem is authentic, then your experience of it will be just as authentic, whether or not it's what I intended with my choices. Nice. Yeah. No, it makes me think of uh, this is um, quote from the poet Mark Strand, who died a few years ago. And he said that he felt like the difference between poetry and prose is that prose is always trying to pin things down. And he said, poetry wants to suggest. Mm. And I think it's very similar to me to that thing uh, that Mary Oliver said that I was saying earlier, you know, the language in a poem has to cast more than one shadow. And, and I think, you know, Mark Strand is expressing that same thing in a different way. Yeah. We have to learn what it means to be open. I think. No, I agree. And, and I, you know, with my students, you can see a lot of them are frustrated because they want things to be made easy or simple. Just mm -hmm. tell me what it means. Why can't we just have it mean this one thing? And I said, because we're English majors. That's not what we want. We want it to mean multiple things. But I don't know, maybe they, their, their training, their academic training has taught them that there needs to be one right answer and you need to figure out you know, what that right answer is so you can regurgitate it on the chest. And I said, you know, you have to get away from that thinking. I said, a, a poem is not like one of those word problems in math where you put an equal sign at the end and solve for X. That's not the idea, you know? Um, it, it, it's supposed to be rich with meaning. And, you know, if it's a good poem, no single statement of what it means can be conclusive, right? And it's like, I think Flannery O'Connor was right. She was talking about short stories. She said, if you can say conclusively what a story means, you can bet it's not a very good story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they all could be or should be living documents, you know, where it's open to interpretation at for all time. Yeah. I think. And, you know, and because that's a reflection of the nature of reality, you know, we, we bring the meaning. I mean, it, it, it is, and we'll never understand it. So we're applying the little minuscule meanings that we can possibly grasp in our brain to apply to them. And it continually changes. That reminds me of a Jack Gilbert quote which is something like, I'm paraphrasing, but we have to unlearn the constellations to see the stars. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, that's it. Well, let's hear another piece of music. 
I'm going to let you go, Nick. You, why, don't you, why don't you choose us another piece of music? Okay, well, it's tough, but I love this Amy Mann album called Lost in Space. I love every song on there, and so it's really hard for me to pick, but I've decided the one that maybe I like the most is The Moth. The Moth by Amy Mann.
that was Amy Mann with The Moth. It was Nick Norwood's selection. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Yes, we've, we've had a wonderful conversation today on The Art House with Lauren Green and Nick Norwood. We thank you for joining us. Thanks for being with us today. Any closing thoughts? Who, who's, got a, who's got a closing thought to wrap all this up for us? Well, I have a thought about Autumn that I could be happy to share. Would that be all right? I would love that, Nick. I think that people should fall back in love with Autumn mm-hmm. and that we should spend more time as a culture sort of relishing the beauty and the spiritual meaning of this season. And as I was saying earlier, I think that the period between Halloween and Thanksgiving is something that we should revisit as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a season to celebrate. I love it. Thankfulness, gratefulness. These are the qualities I think that if we could... Um, embody. Yes, embody, engender, uh, nurture. These are the feelings that perhaps we would be in relationship in a different kind of way. We are all kind of grasping and holding and trying to get what's ours and uh, trying to prove we're right versus just being present in the moment and being grateful for what we have and being here. Any closing thoughts, Lauren? I was thinking about what Nick said in his poem about the extravagance, the trees before they die. Was that how it went, Nick? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, this season is all about that flicker of life. You know, the firefly, the swollen light of the firefly just before it flickers out and taking that sense of rebirth and renewal and carrying it forward into what then becomes a very quiet, cold, contemplative season of life. Mm. There's a Franz Wright poem and the whole poem in its entirety says and in the desert cold men invented the star (laughs) beautiful beautiful
want to thank our guests today, Nick Norwood, Professor of Creative Writing at CSU and Director of the Carson McCullough Center, and Lauren Green, writer, dreamer, extraordinaire. And I want to thank Shoei Urakawa, our engineer and producer. Thank you, Show. So I encourage everyone to get outside, enjoy this time of year. Betsy and I like to walk around the park, and we walk around the park, we catch falling leaves. And with every leaf we catch, we make a wish, and we hope and manifest the future. Hope you'll get out and see some art today. We have our local art institutions, the Columbus Museum, Passaquan, the Highland Gallery, and the Bo Bartlett Center. Please get out and see some art, make some art, get out and paint, play your instrument, write, dance, tell your story. We have but one life, so let's live it and make this world a better place. Thanks for listening this week. See you right back here next week. Love and light, y'all.